The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been working, we're getting close to finishing our beautiful exploration of one of the most complete and subtle set of meditation instructions we get from the Buddha some 2,600 years later, these 16 steps. I have the cheat sheet up here for those who haven't printed it up at home or can't print it up at home. And we're basically, as I've been reminding people, and I really just want to talk about the last two sections, but the first set of four instructions, what we're doing is we're purifying how the mind or we're developing how the mind relates to the body. And when the mind is intimate with the body in a healthy way, the aftertaste is calm. Right, so that's the fourth instruction. Can we breathe in and out, realizing that harmonious, calm way that the mind is connecting with the body? It's intimate. It doesn't mean the body's perfect, but it's intimate with the body as it actually is, not judging it, not needing the body to be different. So then the aftertaste is a sense of calm in how the mind is relating to the body. The second set of four instructions is how the mind it relates to, bo- uh, to mental activity. So first, it's bodily activity. I should have said that, not the body. It's really bodily activity, because that's what the body is. Because otherwise, the body becomes an idea. But here, this first set of four, we're talking about bodily activity, sensation. But also, in a less to a lesser degree, seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting. So the five physical senses, the activity of the five physical senses, and the mind not having a problem. And that's calm. And then, on a more subtle way, the mind wisdom begins to attend, show up through the activity of the mind, the movement of emotion, the movement of thought, perception, intention, right? Just mental activity. And looking initially at joy and ease, which creates a lot of space because it feels good, this is important. If you want to develop wisdom, see, let's just use equanimity because we have, all of us hopefully have a sense of what it is to be equanimous. like to be there, but okay with the way it is, right? Well, you know the easy way to remember what equanimity is like is have really nice feelings, experience. Because right? when I'm feeling really good, I don't need the moment to be different than it is. So I know what it's like to not need the moment to be different than it is. That's equanimity. So the easy way to remember how to be spacious, like in a perfect world, we'd have a little sweet spot we could go back to where we felt safe enough, comfortable enough, right? And then in that space, momentarily, it would be temporary, right? I would need my experience to be different. Oh, this is equanimity. This is the mind not having a problem being sensitive to emotion, being sensitive to thought, to memory, to intention. This is the mind that's okay having a thinking mind. Right? And that's the last two steps there. First, we, on purpose, strategically... Even if it's not predominant, we pay attention to joy and ease, 
not our irritation, not our agitation, not our judgments, however faint, we keep joy and then eventually a more resonant happiness, ease in mind, because it reminds the mind what it's like to be equanimous, to just let things, oh, I'm okay with things being the way they are because I feel good. And then we notice, we sort of heighten that, oh, I can be aware of whatever's happening now in the mind, emotionally, mentally. I have a lot of space, a lot of equanimity, a lot of dispassion. And then that quiets things down because I'm with the activity of the mind. Just like before, we were with the activity of the body with a lot of equanimity. Now we're with the activity of the mind with a lot of, acti- uh, a lot of equanimity. And so the mind, the activity of mind quiets down. That allows us to more clearly intuit the space of the mind. Now we're in the third set of instructions. We're noticing on purpose. Now this is not easy because our attention normally likes to attend to activity, the activity of the body, what we're seeing, what we're feeling in the body, what we're smelling, or the activity of the mind, what we're remembering, what we're thinking about, what we're emoting. That's where the attention goes. But now, it won't be easy, can we keep in mind the space of the present moment, the space of here and now, as we're breathing in, as we're breathing out. And we just keep trying. It's a training. And you have to pick up the training. You have to want, intend to do the training. Otherwise, you won't know whether the training is helpful or not. You can't evaluate whether this instruction that the Buddha is giving us is useful for you unless you check it out. That's the only way you'll know what the effect is, what it sets in motion. You have to sincerely get yourself enough through the first eight instructions to be able to intuit, oh yeah, there is this space, not what's happening, not the activity of the mind or body, but the space of here and now. Can I keep that in mind as I'm breathing in? Keep it in mind as I'm breathing out? until it starts to appear to the mind as being beautiful. Then I'm going to appreciate it as I'm breathing in and gladden it or appreciate it as I'm breathing out. And then that makes it more apparent how, how still, silent, and peaceful the space of the present moment, the space of the mind is. Because now the mind's got some momentum where it's just noticing the space, not the activity of the present moment. And that's very peaceful. So we're keeping that peace in mind as we're breathing in and out. That's the third instruction in the third set of four instructions, right? Noticing the space, appreciating the space of the mind, heart, uh, and then stilling, concentrating, noticing the peace and silence of that space. Until there's a realization, an insight that because it, that's all the knowing mind is knowing, it's knowing the space of the mind, the beauty of it, and the silence piece of it, then because that's all the knowing mind is knowing, then it can know, this fourth instruction, it can know there's no problem here. There is nobody who has a problem. Right? So that's noticing freedom as we're breathing in and out. The mind, heart, this is free of any self kind of problem, self-centered problem. So then the mind realizes, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being 
but feeling no existential problem, weight, anxiety. Oh, this is what that's like. I've read about it. You know, saints from whatever tradition, they talk about that mystical experience of no problem. People who have the near-death experiences, they come back. What do they say? When you, you know, when you look at the surveys of people who've written books, surveying people who've had near-death experience, the, what they often come back and say is, there's no problem. Whatever this is, as messy as it is, as incomplete, however imperfect we are institutionally, you know, as civilized or whatever, beasts, you know, in the way we treat each other, press each other, the underlying existential feeling that's available is it's okay. Not that we don't want to, it actually frees us up to be more fiercely compassionate because the bottom line is it's okay. Right? It sort of makes us fearless in terms of doing what's right, what's good, because it's okay. And th- this, is, this has to be experienced to see, like, well, what is the effect of getting through those four instructions, really cultivating them over years of practice? The space of the mind, the beauty of the space of the mind, the silence and peace of the space of the mind, realizing there's no problem and the essence of this experience. And then the last four that I want to talk about now, and we'll talk about them again next week, it's really about um, what I said at the beginning. What, when this mind pays attention to it, supports that insight that came, so three, first three, purifying or developing the mind that has a peaceful, wise relationship with the body, cultivating the mind that has a peaceful, wise relationship to mental activity, cultivating the mind that has a peaceful, wise, deep understanding about the nature of the heart in its essence, the nature of the mind in its essence, that it's empty of any self-centered problem, that whatever this is, which is hard to believe in from our ordinary point of view, there isn't a somebody with a problem. Right? There may be a qu- crying child. There may be somebody who needs help. Right? But it doesn't, have to, uh, it doesn't have to include an existential weight of anxiety, of fear in the heart. All the messiness of the world doesn't imply that the heart has to be heavy. So compassionate action, fierce, loving action in the world can be an enlivened, liberated feeling. It doesn't have to be a dead weight because there's so much suffering. But we think that because there's suffering, this has to hurt. And that's the mistaken. Like This is why we need saints, because one of the things saints should model for us is how to be engaged and happy at the same time, right? I mean, isn't that sort of what we get from saints? They're happy, but they're not somehow neglecting what needs to be done around them. That's sort of the definition of a saint, somebody who apparently is happy and free and light and totally doing what needs to be done to make the world a better place. I mean, I'm not sure if there's a better definition for someone that we might consider saintly. 
So how do we develop that insight that essentially there's no problem, there's no self with a problem, there's no existential weight? How do we develop that? And so that's the question that the Buddha mapped out for us with the last four instructions. What, when I or anybody pays attention to it, sets in motion the letting go of the wrong idea, the unnecessary idea that this sort of subtle, omnipresent fear, anxiousness, existential weight is unnecessary. What, when I keep it in mind with a lot of sincerity, a lot of integrity over a long period of time, fearlessly keeping it in mind, allows the heart to let go of what's unnecessary, what's extra. And so the map that the Buddha came up with, you keep in mind in permanence. So we start even with the breath and the mental activity around the breath. So now we're not trying to keep in mind the space of the mind, something subtle. We're right. We've had that insight, no problem, right? And now we take up the last four. And the Buddha says, okay, simply in a, from an ordinary state of consciousness, notice whatever you're noticing is changing. So the breath is there because, you know, we're in a pretty subtle space. And so yeah, the bodily sensations are moving. Any thoughts I have about my meditation, about the breath, those thoughts are moving. Even my idea that I'm free, any conception of freedom is something that comes and goes. Well, this is stupid. That thought comes and goes. I'm never, yeah, maybe it's true, but it's not going to happen to me. That thought comes and goes. So whatever happens, the object we're paying attention to is the changingness, right? So this is a relatively subtle object because it isn't the object, but that any object is changing, whether it's a mental object, a feel, uh, like an emotional feeling or a thought or a memory, an intention, a perception, or physical, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, whatever it is, it's in motion. We just keep that in mind. Keep it in mind where you're breathing in, keeping the changingness of all things in mind. So whatever happens to be predominant in that moment, whatever the attention is knowing, notice that it's changing. Don't worry about what the object is. Notice that the object of awareness is changing, that it's something that comes and goes. And something else is being, oh, well, that's coming and going too. Something, and that's coming and going. And then that leads naturally to this dispassion, right? Just the heart that, like, because everything is a flow, like sand through the fingers, grasping does not make sense. So dispassion is the ripening of the understanding that there's no ground anywhere. It's just flow, open space, really. This is, and I mentioned this in the past weeks, this is what a modern-day physicist would tell us. That it's just, that the more you look, the more you don't find anything. And it's, we're just doing that in our own subjective experiencing. We're looking with a lot of integrity and not finding any ground. And we're letting that mature into this wisdom that knows what we call dispassion, 
There's nothing here for me. It's really the ego's last voice. There's nothing here for me. There's nothing worthy of grasping. There is no way I can make ground. And what is that? What, what is the ripening of that insight? What do you think the ego does with the ripening of that insight? It ceases to be something that's looking for ground. Right? So in a way, it, the ego ceases being self-centered in the sense of looking for its own ground. Because it sees clearly from the sincere, careful, compassionate observation that no ground will be found. So we so much would like the ego to cease its neurotic activity, but there is a natural cause for the ego, that neurotic ego who is looking for ground in my relationship with my partner or looking for ground and having a lot of money or looking for ground and having everybody like me or looking for ground and having more power than other people. You know, all the ways are looking for ground and not needing anybody, you know. So whatever way we seek to have ground can't be found. And so that ego basically gives up. And this is that third step in the last set of four, which is translated as cessation. It's the cessation of selfing, right? So we observe impermanent, everything is impermanent as you're breathing in and out. We observe the dispassion that arises because of that. There's nothing here for me, nothing worth grasping. Only sane thing is letting go. But from an egoic point of view still, right? It's the ripening of the ego, right? The ego, the sense of self is getting the sense of it, (laughs) getting the sense of the way it is, right? Because it's only the ego, that activity has to find its own natural resolution, which saying it's, there's no space for me. It's, I'm not needed here. I'm not needed here. Does it make sense? I don't make sense, right? And so that ceases. That selfing activity ceases. And then the, the last, the sort of the letting go is sort of the uprooting of the tendency. So the whole thing, I mean, don't, don't get confused about the, the differences in the four steps. It's really that what I, the setup that I mentioned in the beginning, like what, when the mind pays attention to it, supports the heart's release, the heart growing comfortable with no ground. That it's like we, you know, from an, from an ordinary egoic point of view, it's, it should be scary. That's actually a good sign, like, ooh. But the experience is one of freedom and lightness. Like I said, the aftertaste is always, there's no problem. It's okay. The messiness is okay. It's not like a transcendent okay. I got out of the messiness. No, no. The messiness of embodiment, the messiness of relationship, the messiness of our beastly tendencies of power and control and you know, the ways that our animal nature then express itself in society, right? That, that this isn't the problem. The problem is misunderstanding it, right? Because we look at 
this embodiment and the beastliness of, you know, we're animals, right? We look at it from the point of view of self. And that infuses this with a kind of, you know, from this point of view, a kind of toxicity. And that can be uprooted. And that's really what the last four steps are. Once the mind has this deeper, more subtle intuition about the nature of the mind, that it's actually empty, that self is a construction, because remember that last step, which would be four, eight, So the 12th step is realizing the mind that's empty of a problem. Because we've been keeping in mind the space of the mind, how beautiful it is, how peaceful it is, until that awareness of the mind, the space of the mind, is so full that the mind realizes that in this space there's no problem. There's no selfing happening because the mind has been so fully aware of the space, not the activity. Because selfing is an activity. It's basically a subtle thought, the sense of me and mine. Right? That requires mental construction, right? Thinking. And when the attention has been trained to be just with the silent, beautiful, peaceful space, then that gets squeezed out. Selfing gets squeezed out of the mind and the mind realizes the mind without selfing. And and that's a real confidence. Like, oh. Because always now, until we have enough of that experience, we feel we have to address the problem the self has right now. I'm lonely. I'm hungry. I don't feel loved. And that's sort of, that's what gets our attention. But when we have that 12th step experience enough, then we can hold that selfing with a wiser perspective. We see that in the I'm lonely. We hear it. We feel it. But we have space around it. We know it's real in a relative sense. Just like some of you are parents, and you'll see your four-year-old like having a complete fit about something you know is ultimately not that important, right? And you can do both. You can realize that human being is really suffering and can't you know also it's not a big deal. You know both are true at the same time. And you're not sort of neglecting the fact that their subjective experience is like their whole world has collapsed because they can't find their pony or something like that. And you know... Yeah, sometimes it's like this, and they'll get over it, and it's okay, right? We can hold both. And it's a little bit like this insight to the nth degree, right? Where we realize what selfing is, we're not dismissive of our selfing. We just have much more space around it, which allows us to show up to our selfing and the world's selfing with a lot more nimbleness and creativity without freaking out when we're losing it or somebody else is losing it. So I'll leave it here. We have about six minutes before the children come in. Maybe you have some comments. We'll again pick this up next Sunday. But questions or comments from your own practice that seem related to these uh, last eight steps 
of the Buddha's instructions here? What comes to mind? And especially, folks, I've been mentioning recently, you know, to, for all of us to take responsibility in these Q&A times, to really let other voices come in. You know, if you're someone who always feels inclined to share or to ask a question, maybe just see if there are other people in the room that really want their voices want to come forward. Yeah, so what, what comes to mind? Firstly, I'm relatively new to this, so my question is, uh, and uh, to try to adopt what you said in the past 10 years, the concept of being um, something is being known. And uh, part of what I've been trying to add in, which I think is helping me, is like, oh, over-intellectualizing this exercise is being known. <laughs> <laughs> Distraction being known. Feeling inferior is being that yeah. is the natural steps of just starting to embrace this process. Absolutely. Okay, that's very comforting. That's for me. It's like, <laughs> really, well, I feel like I'm getting because thinking of these steps. Let's try that. Okay. Um, I talk about it anyway. Um, but the. When I hear these steps, part of what's interesting is that it feels like, you know, the logical progression is all I have this, I have this, I have this. And my perception is that there have been times where I've walked all the way close to the end, but like step three, I can't do as much. So is it also quite common not to have this be a really smooth thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So part of what we're doing here, because it's instructional, is we're getting a sense, at least intellectually, because we're hearing it, of the whole map. But how we learn it is a real adventure. And we... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's good to kind of follow along, just to sort of, to kind of get that uh, conceptual level, that map level down, so you can play with it, and your mind just, at least intellectually, has a sense of the whole span of the map. Because that way you're more likely to recognize when the mind is here and won't neurotically be doing this on a more gross level when you what might actually be more interesting to the mind, more relevant, given where the mind's at. It's in a more subtle place. So maybe this would be more appropriate to be bringing this to mind as you're breathing in and breathing out. But if you don't know that more subtle part of the map, it would, the mind wouldn't be inclined to do that. Yeah, yeah, because you need both. Knowing where I want to go. Exactly. Because that being known phrase, when I first heard it, uh, uh, not being known is being known. I have no <laughs> idea where I am. So that's only now becoming a very helpful validation of back at home. That's a real insight. What you shared at the beginning of your comment is a real insight to understand when the mind is sort of, that's something being known. That's not a small step. For the mind to be able to step out of the drama and realize this is something being known is profound, right? Because you see it has a lot to do with that third set of four instructions of understanding the space of the mind. Because it's only with that insight, however feeble it might be, it's real. It's real in your practice because it's only when there's that space of the mind that wisdom in a sense steps out by associating itself with the space and then it can look at the drama. I don't, I'm not getting this. Because it's only when the mind, the 
wisdom steps outside of being the one who doesn't get it, that it can realize, oh, there is that drama. I don't get it. And it's just a... Exactly. Thanks. Well, that really is helpful. I, I've been struggling with trying to share that understand that and having some guidance with this. So thank you for that. Yeah, we are with the, it's the Buddhist instruction. So <laughs> <laughs> it would not be cool for me to claim these instructions. <laughs> Who'd like to go next? My name's Emil, and uh, as a result of some physical uh, things I've been going through, I'm thinking about my heart. And uh, somebody told me that they basically discovered that it's not really the brain that's in charge. It's the heart that's in charge. And our brain sends out messages and sometimes the heart will say, okay, I'll do that, then maybe I won't. When the heart sends out messages to the brain, it always is confined in all sorts of directions. So I just found that very interesting with how we use that term, my heart in Buddhism. Yeah, and when we use the word chitta, which we translate either as mind or heart, right, we're talking about the totality of the present moment. Because this experience, right now, your subjective experience, so we're not talking abstractly or intellectually. This, for each just do this with me, so this experience is heart-mind, right? Where else, what else would this be? Because we're not concerned, from our subjective experiencing point of view, we're not concerned with philosophy, inside or outside. This is the mind, the heart, the totality of this, right? And so and one of the obvious characteristics of this is something is being known. And the more we look at that, we realize there's not much more we can say about this than something is being known. And both the something that's being known is mind. Not just the being known, but the something is also mind because the something is being known in the mind only, in the heart felt in the heart so but because in the west we've kind of have this habit this cultural habit of rational logical analytical whatever we have this sort of contrived separation but so if that's an issue yeah working more with the heart center and just generally this area more than this area is a good anchor for when you're thinking about the heart mind because it has more of the sense of the totality. And it always is embodied. The body is something being known here and now. There's nothing outside of that. So it's really good to think of the mind in a totality, uh, an inclusive sense. Yeah, thanks, Amol, and so good to see you here. Amol's one of our teachers and just had a pretty serious medical <laughs> Intervention a few days, a week and a half ago. Good. Who's next? Maybe one more time, one more person before the children come in. 
Um, you mentioned some readings on, on near-death experiences and the spiritual aspect of those. Uh, there's also readings and articles on uh, spontaneous spiritual experiences with meditation. Is the same thing? Well, they might be. It just depends on... I mean, there are all kinds of experiences in meditation. But yeah, the the experience of cessation, that uh, 12th step, right, is that experience because it's the mind, a non-contriving mind, because awareness isn't interested in any mental activity, which means any mental construction, contriving of anything, right? Because it's really interested in the space. And then that that mind realizes something that has been unnoticed prior often or not noticed very often. And so it's a mystical experience. Yeah, my sense, and but this is more my opinion, my sense is that mystical experiences, the diversity of mystical experiences have more to do with a mind, with their limited conditioning, cultural conditioning, trying to describe the mystical experience more than that the mystical experience was really different from other mystical experiences. Right? They might be pretty much the same experience, but each person being limited by their cultural conditioning, language, whatever, how they describe it might seem really completely different than somebody else describing a, mis- a deep kind of transforming experience. Yeah, thanks. Are the kids here? Hmm, okay. Yeah, over here. Yeah, please. Um <laughs> A few different times this week, um, when I've been going through the steps, I've had this image of um, you know those those pictures where it's like the where the foreground and background switch, depending on where you're looking at it. Like it may be two faces, or it may be a vase, right? Um, when I get towards the third set of instructions, um, when you're paying attention to the the space it's like the background becomes foreground um and then as that becomes bright you recognize that you know the faces that you're normally always looking at have now become the background and if you don't attach to either of them then it's almost like the experience of mind just flickers between foreground and background um and you're not attaching to either right and that's the key, is not to get stuck on the beauty or the power of that space, but to see that it's empty of being a problem. And that really stabilizes it. Because you want to keep that in mind, that absence of there being a self-problem. Well, that's the actual object you want to keep in mind. Because that really changes, like that uproots a very deep, strong tendency or beastly tendency to be living our life as a beast with a problem. Enough food, enough safety, enough this, enough that, right? That's a chronic, chronic tendency in our mind until it has this deeper spiritual experience enough times. It's generally not just like a couple times, but we need to regularly touch that experience or open to that experience until that tendency to be experiencing life as if there's somebody with a problem gets kind of uprooted. And here they are. Thanks for the good comment. 
and all the other good comments. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.